It's Thursday, November 21st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Fool.com, Matt Kopenheffer and David Hansen. Thanks for being here, guys. Hey, Thursday, Chris. Happy Thursday. I say from Fool.com, increasingly I feel like I should say from where the money is. The hit podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, hit, on Swell. Hit podcast. Uh, and uh, if you're not listening to it, you should be. Um, we're gonna. There are there are companies. There are retail companies reporting earnings this morning. We're not going to get into that. Um, we will get into that on the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. So check that out this weekend because we will definitely be talking about holiday retail. But uh, we're going to talk about the J.P. Morgan settlement. We're going to talk about the mysterious world of Bitcoin. But we're going to start with General Motors um, shares of GM up this morning. The U.S. Treasury Department has said it will sell its remaining shares of GM by the end of the year. This is all stemming from the 2009 bailout. And all told, it appears that Uncle Sam, and by Uncle Sam, I mean we, the taxpayers, will recoup. The number I saw, Matt, was $39.6 billion. Worth pointing out that the actual bailout was $49.5 billion. So we're going we're gonna to have, have a shortfall of $10 billion, but all told, for the entire TARP program, a net gain of about $10 billion. But before we get into TARP writ large, in terms of GM, when you look at this, do you think, okay, this is, this is a company that's now back on its feet again, the government did its job, what, what do you make of this news? Sure. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. It, it looks like a, a much transformed company. Obviously, it's profitable. I mean, it's, it's nice that there's a nice tailwind for it in the auto industry right now coming out of the recession. Basically, we had a backlog of people who had been driving older cars, beat up cars, waiting for the recession to end so that they could buy something new. So that's helping not only GM, but all the other car makers and all the other auto parts makers. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, you, you look at the GM of today, and uh, and it looks a lot better. And although I'd rather not see a $10 billion loss for uh, taxpayers on this, it's hard to say that this did not benefit this company. I'm wondering, David, when I first saw the news this morning, I thought, this is going to help GM in, in one respect because they got tagged with the nickname Government Motors and you go to certain parts of this country, and there are people who take that very seriously and say, I'm not going to buy a GM car because they got bailed out by the government. And I thought when I first saw the news, oh, this is now behind them. I'm wondering, though, with the shortfall, I'm wondering if this tag sticks with them for at least a little bit longer just because of, oh, yeah, we bailed you out, and oh, yeah, we lost $10 billion on it. Yeah, it would be nice if we could get a a profit off it as taxpayers, but that's not really what's important here. I think politics aside, it, it seemed to have accomplished what they set out to do. It obviously saved a lot of jobs, saved a lot of tax revenue there uh, for the government. So yeah, we didn't get our our money back and maybe the stigma will stay there a little bit longer. But if we're thinking long term with GM, this is eventually going to wash away and 10 years down the road, we won't think much of it. It seems kind of hard to argue now, based on the fact that we will have the results of the overall TARP program. It would seem hard to argue that that was a mistake. But at the time, what did you think when you saw this massive this massive program unfolding? And at, I mean, one thought I had at the time was, wow, it really seems like multiple blank checks are being handed out by the federal government. I didn't necessarily think it was a bad idea because of how bad things were. But that did strike me as, wow, it really seems like the fire hose of money is on and it's not stopping anytime soon. I thought it was not only necessary, but we actually should have done more. 
the government should have done more. But I'm probably the wrong person to ask if you're hoping to hear that the, the that TARP wasn't wasn't a great idea. I actually think if you look at the situation today, I actually think the government should be stepping in more with the economic situation today. Uh, we look at what the Fed's doing and all of the complaints about the easy monetary policy and how now Bernanke is saying low interest rates are going to go on and on and on and on. That's basically the Fed saying the economy needs support. We're doing everything that we can to do our part of it, which isn't much at this point for the Fed, given that rates are at zero and they're already uh, doing all this bond buying. Uh, and, and, and the government is basically doing the opposite, curtailing the budget, laying people off. So looking back to, to when TARP happened, to, to when all of the bailouts happened, I thought it was a good move. Today, it's not looking as bad as people, as people thought it was going to be. I think it actually could have been even better if the government uh, played the buy and hold investor role. It was sort of like a, a save and sell kind of, uh, kind of role where they put in all this money, saved the companies, and then got out almost as quickly as they got in in a lot of cases and didn't benefit from all the upside. Private investors like us, like fools who, who, who got in on the other side, benefited more than the government did. You think those Bank of America uh, warrants, we, Uncle Sam should have held on to those? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and and AI, I mean AIG too. Uh, if you look at and part of the performance of AIG was people celebrating the fact that the government was able to that they were able to get the government ownership uh, out of there, but staying in there as well. I mean there there are countless cases of these stocks, these companies doing better, the stocks doing much better, and the government was long gone from its ownership stake. Yeah, and Matt says we could have done better. We also could have done worse. I mean, it's hard to look back and say this was a direct causation. We did TARP. We have a better economy today. I don't think it's that clear. It could have gone worse, could have gone better. There was a Wrong. lot of moving parts in here. <laughs> but Wrong. Do, but don't you, think, don't you think the next time any type of situation like this happens that politicians on Capitol Hill will absolutely make that argument? Hey, look what we did in 2009. TARP worked. We made money on the deal. Maybe not as much as Matt would have liked, but we made money. It was profitable for taxpayers. Hopefully, we don't get into a situation where they need to do that anytime <laughs> soon, but they probably will. I'm just saying that, that I think there was a lot that happened in the last five years that account for where we are today. TARP's part of that process, but I don't think it's a direct causation. Let's talk about the J.P. Morgan Chase settlement. And some listeners may be wondering, wait a minute, why didn't you talk about this on Tuesday? Why didn't you talk about this on Thursday? Uh, I was out yesterday, and I actually emailed Mark Reith. Uh, who hosted Market Foolery yesterday? I emailed him yesterday morning. I said, "Hey, whatever you talk about, please don't talk about J.P. Morgan Chase <laughs> because I want to talk about that on Thursday because I'm going to have Matt and David in the room. So this is your this is right up your alley. Thirteen billion dollar settlement. Worth pointing out. This is roughly half of J.P. Morgan Chase's annual profit. And yet, Matt, there are people out there in the financial media and elsewhere saying, not enough. They should have got dinged even more." What do you think? I don't know. At this point, it's the question is, who are you really punishing here? Because wh- where is this money? Whose pocket is this money coming out of? It, I, I've been supportive of, of Jamie Dimon through this process. I don't think he's the best banker out there. I, th- I think he's a good banker. I think he's a solid leader for J.P. Morgan. But if I were in his shoes, would it be difficult for me to uh, negotiate this sort of settlement? Not really. It's not my money. It's shareholders' money. And if you look at the extent to which shares turn over in today's market, uh, ownership, not many investors think like us fools. Not many investors are thinking about long-term ownership. So the owners of J.P. Morgan today are not the owners 
uh, for the most part, of J.P. Morgan in 2006. And, and frankly, uh, a, a lot of what J.P. Morgan is today, or some of what J.P. Morgan is today, is Washington Mutual and Bear Stearns, and that had a lot that had a lot to do with this settlement. So who are you punishing today? It's the the, the current shareholders of J.P. Morgan, and I'm a little biased because I'm one of, one of them. But um, if if the concern is that there was that there was fraud going on here, that there were people doing things wrong. I think you have to punish them because if, if, this, if the opportunity to do the same thing comes around again, why is anybody going to do anything different? It's just, oh, well, the company will settle with the government. We'll pay the fine. And the shareholders will pay the fine. If anything, though, it is, it's, a, it's a push for shareholders to be more involved in, in as much as they can, not that they really could have seen behind the scenes to see what was going on here. If there's fraud involved, why isn't someone going to jail? It's really hard. From a, from a prosecutorial perspective, it's really hard. And, and they, they didn't admit violating the law here, we should say, in the right. settlement. This wasn't an admission of any wrongdoing. So there wasn't blatant fraud that was admitted to. A lot, a lot of this, a lot of this is, is being pursued under uh, FREA claims. So FREA was set up uh, during the last banking crisis. And the advantage for the government with using FREA claims is that it's, a, it's civil, so you have a much lower bar to, to quote-unquote prove something. Yes. It's more of a, we think it's basically more likely than not that something bad went on here as opposed to beyond a shadow of, the doubt, of a doubt, which is what we usually think of, which is criminal cases. Um, and there's a much longer um, statute of limit, limitations on it. So this is a very, very powerful tool for the government to use pursuing uh, civil cases against the banks. Are we going to see more of this? Oh, yeah. And who's next on the list? I have to believe, I, I've said this before uh, or about uh, Vikram Pandit when he was the CEO at Citigroup. Uh, one of the things I used to say about him was, as long as he was there, Brian Moynihan had to be happy over at Bank <laughs> of America because Brian Moynihan isn't getting dinged as the worst big bank CEO. It's Vikram Pandit. Mm-hmm. And once he was gone, I said, wow, that's, that's bad news for Brian Moynihan. I have to believe that there are banks people within banks who over the last few months have said, whew, thank goodness the spotlight is on J.P. Morgan, so it's not on us. Who's it going to be on now? Not for long. It, it's, the question now is almost who, who's it not going to be on? Uh, like I said, the, under FERIA, it's, it's a 10-year statute of limitations. Uh, statute of limitations, however you say it. Uh, so the government has... It's has statute. Statute. There's not statute. a statute <laughs> of limitations. Wouldn't that be interesting, though? Uh, so, so there's the government has a lot longer to pursue these claims. So, the, the big banks obviously are going to be big targets. The somewhat not as big banks, I think, will also be targets. Uh, to, to date, investors in smaller banks, I think, have said, "Wow, we really dodged a bullet on this one." I'm not so sure that that's going to be true going forward. I, I think, I think that we are going to see a little bit more of that. Yeah, J.P. Morgan was just the first in line, and they had a conference call to discuss the 13 billion. And I think it was Mike Mayo, who you had on the weekend show the other day, who said, hey, Jamie, why, why were you guys the ones that, that got the brunt of this first? And he said, you're going to have to ask the government there. I don't know. We were just the first in line. They, somebody had to be first. So it was us. So yeah, like Matt said, there's going to be more. Here's Eric Holder's phone number. Give him a call <laughs> and ask him. Um, before we get, we get to our final story, uh, you can follow these guys on Twitter, TMF Financials. Uh, is the Twitter account for where the money is. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at MarketFoolery is our Twitter handle. Got a tweet from Brian Woodford who wrote, I'm a longtime MarketFoolery listener. A first time, it's my first time watching Investor Beat. 
Chris Hill and Ron Gross looked nothing like how I pictured. And then he had a little <laughs> emoticon, and I don't – it wasn't a smile. And I think I'm, I'm going to try and read into the emoticon, but it was sort of this – it was a little bit of a grimace, like, ooh, those <laughs> – those guys don't that's look. Brutal. Those guys don't look like they should be in front of a camera. They should just, you know, be on the radio, and that's it. I actually, I actually would agree with that. Before I started working here, I, I listened. I listened to Market Foolery as well. <laughs> they shouldn't be on video. No, 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 no. no. Uh, that they, they weren't. Jerk, they didn't man. look like what I expected. Especially Ron. I, I pictured Ron to be this little petite guy, and then he's he's Ron. Yeah. Surprising. His voice doesn't match his body, let's say that. Ron, not a petite guy. He's not. Um, speaking of InvestorBeat, uh, if you didn't check it out, please uh, check out InvestorBeat now on iTunes. I was up in New York City yesterday uh, christening our brand new video studio up there. Tom Gardner, our CEO, was the guest for InvestorBeat. So uh, expect more video coming out of New York City. It was a good time. Um, and finally, this is not a financial topic. It is a financial topic, it is a financial actually. Topic. Um, uh, and that is this weekend, if you're in the D.C. area and you feel like uh, getting a little exercise, The Motley Fool is one of the sponsors of the Run for Shelter race, which is in Alexandria this weekend. There's a 10K. There's a 5K. There's a fun run. It's this Saturday morning. You can go to runforshelter10k.com. Check it out. Whole bunch of fools are running this. Matt, you're. I think all Every, three. Everybody. All three yeah. of us are running. David, this. you're doing the, the fun run, right? <laughs> the, you're, do, hey. you're doing a 400 meter walk. Five k. That <laughs> is. That's almost. That's more than three times the fun run. That's <laughs> three times the fun. <laughs> David Hansen, really good at math. Really good at math. David's doing the five k. Uh, Matt and I, and I, I was saying earlier this morning, I, we had uh, a few people run this last year when we sponsored it. I think we've got 15, 20 people from the Motley Fool who are running it's this be weekend. It should be good. And I, I am expecting, and I'll just say right now to our <laughs> dozens of listeners, I'm expecting a top 12 finish from Matt Copenhauer oh, in the 10K. Top 12. That's brutal. We're gonna, and put that, that, you put that out there. Putting that out there. I, I think you can do it. Uh, final story, the mysterious world of Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has come up before on this podcast, mostly as a target of humor, because it, among other things, involves the Winklevoss twins. And I'm just suspect of anything involving the Winklevoss twins. And yet, I am curious because, Matt, you own a Bitcoin? What? I, I'm sure you've talked about this on your show, <laughs> but for Market Foolery listeners, you went out and said, I'm going to find out what's going on in Bitcoin. And so if you could just share the process of what you own, how you came to own it, what you're going to spend your Bitcoin money on. So on behalf of the fool, uh, I, well, I should say the finan- our financials group owns 012 Bitcoins, so a fraction of a Bitcoin, and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily planned that way that we were we were only going to own that much. Originally, we thought, oh, we could own a Bitcoin, but it's and a Bitcoin in terms of U.S. dollars is what roughly? It depends on what minute of the day you look <laughs> at it. The, the price is jumping around so much. The last time I checked was seven hundred dollars, which is good news for us because we bought it less than that. At the end of last year, though, at the end of two thousand twelve, a Bitcoin was worth roughly thirteen dollars and fifty cents. Now seven hundred dollars. So we clearly missed the boat on on speculating on Bitcoin. That maybe the ship hasn't totally sailed, but there's been a lot of sailing so far. Anyway, with Ben Bernanke talking about Bitcoin, with the SEC and and the Department of Justice, Justice all talking about Bitcoin, we said we have to check this out. And better still, David and I have decided that we're going to buy a Thanksgiving dinner using Bitcoin. Try to buy. We're going to buy it, David. Okay, we're, gonna- we're, we're doing this. 
the first challenge though is getting the Bitcoin and to 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 get a Bitcoin unless you want to hook up your bank account directly to one of these Bitcoin exchanges, which I wasn't. And and who wouldn't want to do that? Well, true, true. Um, the the other option using a credit card. I, I found a, a site called Virtual World Exchange. So in Virtual World Exchange, you can use a credit card, but they limit you on how much you can deposit over a 24-hour period. That's thus the it was like a hundred dollars that you could deposit. So you could deposit U.S. dollars, but then you you can't exchange that for Bitcoin. You have to exchange that for Second Life Linden. Now, Second Life is an online virtual world. Linden is the digital currency for Second Life. So you get Second Life Linden. I got some tens or hundreds of thousands of Second Life Linden, and then you can exchange that for Bitcoin. Let's so, let's say I'm a <laughs> I'm a, a hardcore Farmville player. Okay. In the virtual world currency, can I buy some Farmville credits and go buy a couple pigs too? Probably. That, yeah, I, I would imagine you could. <laughs> this is the most convoluted thing I've ever heard of in my life. I'm wondering how many Farmville credits equate to a Bitcoin. You've got me thinking now. Let's get back to the Bitcoin. So you so, <laughs> so you, you have your second life Linden. I've got my second life Linden on the way to getting the second life Linden. So to deposit in virtual world exchange, it was $4 and some amount of change to just make the deposit. So I'm out $4 right away. Then to exchange for the second life Linden, that was another, so it cost me 50 Linden, 50 Second Life Linden, plus 2.9% of my transaction. So it came out to somewhere around $5 to, to do that exchange. And then to exchange the Second Life Linden for Bitcoin, that was another 50 Linden plus 2.9% of the exchange. And then- By the way, you know who's loving this right now? Anyone who works at a bank who's listening <laughs> to this conversation says, oh, you don't like our ATM fees? You don't like us dinging, us, dinging you for $2? Try getting a Bitcoin and see what that's going to cost you. So, so what's even better is is I finally got my 0.12 Bitcoin. And, and I, I, along with that, I still had 1,600 Second Life Linden because I couldn't do a full exchange and 87, US, 87 cents US dollars. And then I had to use the restroom. So I got up and went and used the restroom. <laughs> By the time I got back, the value of Bitcoin had fallen. So I was out another $10. Uh, on, so, so by the time all was said and done, and I went home from the office the other day, I'd started with one hundred and four dollars, and I had seventy four dollars by, by by the end of it. You have just validated everything I have assumed about Bitcoin, about how incredibly convoluted and just warped it is. In defense of Bitcoin, if you are transacting, if you are moving bitcoins around, it's much easier. Getting in and out of Bitcoin from dollars. There may be an easier way. Hopefully, there's an easier way. Yeah, setting up your but, bank account. But it just well, who's who's rushing out to put up their life savings into Mount Gox a that, Bitcoin exchange? That would make a whole lot more sense to me if there were things in this world that I could only buy with Bitcoin. But the last time I checked, oh, th- we're getting a Thanksgiving dinner with Bitcoin. I can buy a Thanksgiving dinner with any currency in the world. <laughs> That's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? I appreciate that you're going through this because. Well, it's it's illuminating among other things, and again, it just validated everything I've ever believed about Bitcoin. Here's the here. Listen to this though: Bitcoin back up to seven hundred dollars today. Our our total currency now worth about ninety four dollars. Wow, we're recouping. Do you have an exit strategy? Do you have a price where you think, oh, this is when I'm going to get out? What, like what we talk all the time about investing thesis when you buy a stock. What is your investing thesis for Bitcoin? Is it just is it time stamped or is it value stamped? One million dollars per Bitcoin or Thanksgiving dinner. 
Here's here's actually a really quick, interesting. I, I got some some Domino's pizza earlier this week. I spent twenty dollars on my Domino's order. I, I said this on our show the other day. Twenty dollars for a Domino's order. Mm-hmm. If I had bought that twenty dollars worth of pizza with Bitcoin at, at at the end of last year when Bitcoin was thirteen dollars and fifty cents, I'd be looking back at a couple pizzas that cost me effectively sixteen hundred dollars. <laughs> it's good pizza. That's got to be a hell of a good pizza. It's got to be a hell of a good pizza. <laughs> All right. David Hansen, Matt Copenheffer, guys, thanks for being here. Check out Where the Money Is, the daily podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Swell, and probably numerous other apps as well. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Monday.